This week on A to Z Running, two more athletes talk about success and satisfaction and what it looks like to be comfortable in the mess and perform well. And we answer a question about preparing for a 50K race. In the world of running, new standalone 25K records were set in Kolkata. Three Japanese men broke a national record in the same race. And NIL deals are continuing to make news and getting more complicated. All this and more on A to Z Running. Welcome back to A to Z Running, where we help runners thrive with information, inspiration, and coaching and training services. I'm Andy. And I'm Zach. And just a reminder that you can learn more about our services and support for runners at A to Z Running.com and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Spotify. And someone drove past me today while I was running. Okay. And shouted out the window. <laughs> People, people shout at runners a lot. There's this thing about shouting at runners. Like, for some reason, because someone's running on the road, sidewalk doesn't really matter. Because they're running, they're a prime candidate or audience for whatever thought is in my mind. And somewhat captive audience, because, you know, they're not really able to not hear me unless their earphones are too loud. Wait, you're the one yelling at the runners? No, no, no. Oh. Someone yelled at me. Okay. And it just made me pause to remember that. This is kind of like a thing, and it's been a thing, I think, since the very beginning of, well, you know, it goes all the way. horses. Well, it goes all the way back to Forrest (laughs) Gump, right? And maybe that's when it all started. Yeah. In the movie. It was happening before that. No, you think so? Okay. I think people, like, would ride by on horses. Someone's running along. Be like, hey, don't you wish you had this horse? That That's not really the (laughs) point that I'm making. Okay. It's It's like, you know, just whatever the thing is that I feel like that runner needs to hear because it's a runner, I am much more likely to yell it at them than oh, if it I was see. just. So it was another runner who yelled at you today. No, it was someone oh. driving in a car who yelled at me, and actually it was a positive thing. So she she yells out. She actually didn't yell either. She was very close to me because I was in the road and she was driving past me on the one side, and she said, "Thank you for being visible," and oh. I was quite visible. <laughs> I. I was wearing like, you know, one of those vest things that has the neon tubes all over it and is like flashing. I look like a Christmas tree yeah. running in the middle of the street, which I thought to myself, most of the year, that is an impossible to miss sight. Like the, just basically this Christmas tree that's running. But then I, I remembered that those are all over the place right now with everyone's Christmas lights, decorations. So maybe the reason why people are still finding it possible to hit me, despite the fact that I'm lit up like a Christmas tree, is because they just think I blend in with all the rest of the Christmas decorations everywhere. Could be. Which is the only possible excuse for why someone would do that. But anyway, uh, thanks to the lady who's thanked me for being all lit up and stuff, because, you know, that's why I'm doing it, so that you, you see me. It's not like it's a fashion statement or anything. Sure. Not, not, not for me. You like to twinkle. I don't have anything to say to that. So everyone listening right now is just really hoping that we're going to move on from this. So let's do just that and get started with your questions. Thanks to Carol who sent us this question via email. 
She is uh, running a 50K at age 65, and she says, I'm looking for some advice, hoping you can help. She's turning 65 in October, and she wants to celebrate by running her first 50K at the end of the month. I love runners. I love that. I'm turning an age, and so I want to celebrate it by running more. That's a thing that runners tend to do quite a bit, and it entertains me immensely. She writes, the race I have picked is rails to trails, so it's flat. I have run many marathons. I'm comfortable with that distance, and although it's not much longer, it's still new, and I want to be as prepared as possible. Any suggestions for me? Thanks, and love your podcast. Thanks, Carol. Thank you. So, Congrats on the new milestone. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be fun. I, I love these kinds of things. We have many athletes who enjoy having certain birthdays be new events for them so or other kinds of commemorations it's like you know i'm going to this new place so i'm going to run the mountain that's famous there or like all the stuff runners are just we're we're a we're a lot of fun sure so to give you some perspective the 50k is 31 miles and the marathon is of course 26.2 yeah you're talking five more it's it's 8k 42k is a marathon 30 50k is five miles more so for a 50k you're going to need the same ingredients um and so those are the musculoskeletal resilience you want to have uh good near muscle near muscular activation so all of your muscles are recruiting in the way that you need for the longevity of the race and then also you need to have high aerobic capacity so those are the key ingredients yeah so um this course that you mentioned carol is one of those like bike paths types of thing that's like flat and straight, I'm assuming, because you said it's a rail to trail, which is what those are. Um, so the only other side of all of this is make sure that you spend a fair bit of time running on like Gravel. flat and straight routes oh. that are this similar type of terrain. Yeah, if it's paved, then pave. If it's not paved, then especially if it's like gravel. Yeah, um, only because it's a long time. And if, if that type of thing at a higher load is not familiar to your body, it could it could be uncomfortable and especially fatiguing. So we suggest with all of our training for long distance events, the marathon, half marathon and such, to have many weeks of a long run. So there are a lot of training programs that don't have you running consistently uh, the longer long run. And we do, even even for our you know half marathon 10K, um, because you need to be able to build up that resistance and fatigue resistance as well. So not only for your body, um, but also for your systems. And it becomes increasingly imp- important the longer that you're out for your race. And because you are out that extra five miles, uh, I want to make sure that we mention that you have this part of our recommendation, and that is to be doing consistent long running for many weeks. Yeah. So as you know, the important element of vo- load and volume is just structural resilience. It's strengthening your body. And in this particular instance, that's the key here. It, it does not matter your aerobic potential in a sense um, insofar as your muscles and bones can handle the thing for a long period of time that's the perspective in general with ultra running by the way you're not ignoring aerobic training but but the point is you need to have that and so the best way to build that is through consistent volumes over time that's what andy is saying and we have often 
railed against the silly approach where you like build up your long run until you're two or three weeks before your key race. And that's when you hit like your longest run. And it's like, first of all, how silly is that where you get to like your most strenuous thing that you do just a few weeks before the race and you do it once or maybe twice. It's like, well, you're, you're achieving almost no adaptations from that in only one or two instances. You need to be doing that like over time to achieve those adaptations. The second thing is you're doing the most extreme thing in close proximity to the race, which is again, something to be avoided as a runner. And then the final point here, which pertains directly to your situation, Carol, is that you need the resilience, which you achieve by um, slight amounts of stress, like small stresses repeated over time. And that's what the volume is for. And so eight weeks of a consistent two and a half to three hour long run, it's going to do you wonders, especially if you're training additional days. You know, you don't want to just do that and no other running. That's not generally advisable. But keep up a, sustain, a sustained running load. Don't uh, overdo it with that, um, but something that's manageable. And just make sure, key emphasis on that long run. Mm-hmm. And as always, and I'm sure you know this, Carol, because you are a veteran marathon runner, but make sure that you are fueling and hydrating properly, not just for your race and practicing for your race, but make sure that in your daily life, you're getting the nutrition that you need to support your long distance running. It is, becomes increasingly important um, as the distances go up as well, because your body's needs are higher. So I wanted to make sure I plug that part of it, because we all need to be told that, even if we know it. So we all need to be told that staying healthy is the priority to be able to complete a race like this. And also when it comes down to the actual race day, and you need to be conservative in the beginnings. Um, we always say that for, for every race, but because of the duration, you really do want to make sure that you're dialing it back even more than you think you need to in the early stages. Right on. Always remember that recovery is paramount here to be able to get to the day feeling good and being ready. So on that side of it, but also, you know, keep, keep your efforts low enough that you can do this basically at a daily rate and not feel like you're sore, not feel like you're um, especially fatigued or fatigue is mounting over time, increasing over time. And if you are able to increase your load during this cycle for your 50K, make sure that you are doing all the mobility and the supportive routines for your healthy lifestyle. Because I, I personally, I have joint issues. And if I'm not mobilizing while I increase any amount of load, I, I suffer for it. So just make sure that you're getting in your mobility even with the, with increased time on feet, perhaps you might not need to. I don't know what you're doing at this very moment, but if you do increase loads, uh, that's another thing to consider. Right on. Anything else? I think that's all I have for now. Carol, we appreciate your question and we're thrilled for you in a, another new venture. One of the things we love about running in general is that there's always something else we could try as runners. We never really fully exhaust, well, I guess there are some out there who have <laughs> done it all. That may be true. But for the rest of us, it's a new moment in your life as well as a new opportunity in your running experience. We wish you the best. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get on to something else helpful.
just a reminder that if you want to share your questions, I should have said this earlier and didn't. However, you should send in your questions all the time and anytime. And you can do that in the easiest way possible. Whatever you find a place where we are, share the question, message us, comment on the things, any of that, and we see all of it. But namely, the easiest way for everyone is to go to adizyrunning.com slash question or email us questions at a2zrunning.com. Very good. We'd love to hear from you. Well, this week we get to hear from some guests, and we're very excited about this series that we have done and to bring you even more thoughts in regards to effort-based training. So our overall focus today is how to achieve success today, like the purpose, what you're supposed to do. Yes. So in spirit of what we've been trying to accomplish, we're bringing the specific experiences of athletes who have been implementing these things and why, as a brief reminder, going back to, I don't remember the last time I actually said this was right at the beginning. Um, because as we find, when we start talking about these concepts, training approaches and things like that, um, we're talking at a theoretical idea level most of the time. And we try to give practical examples but in reality, every single time a runner does these types of things, like train, it looks a little differently. And so we're trying to say, okay, we could probably bring to you enough of these experiences that you see something that you're like, ah, that's like me. I uh, do that type of thing or relate to that type of experience. And so we're trying to kind of do just that, is bring just a lot of different ones. And so our own athletes have been so generous and willing to share their thoughts and experiences. And just so you know, we didn't like specifically select athletes and say, you should share because of this reason and you should share because of this reason. We just simply said to all of them, who wants to, who's willing to, and uh, we, gra we weren't, I mean, we can't feature every single one all of the time, but we took the first several that were willing. And so as it goes, you get then a kind of un, um, we are not trying to guide these conversations to a certain point or to a certain end. We are simply asking the question and giving the athlete a chance to share the experience. Mm -hmm. So hopefully you're getting something from it so far. We're, we're going to be wrapping it up soon. We've got just a few more in the hopper. And then uh, and then we'll be able to basically kind of put a cap on uh, what we feel like has been a very practical time for everyone. And move on to a new topic as well. But for now, as Andy said, we really want to try to address the, the idea of success. And um, that's something that as you've heard different athletes sharing some thoughts, there's been a various different kinds of approaches to that in kind. Here, we think we have some even more direct mm -hmm. thoughts in the form of Kyle and Laura and their yeah. experiences. So let me introduce them. Kyle this year has run PRs and everything <laughs> from the 5K to the half marathon multiple times over. And so he has been part of our program for a couple years now, and it's been thrilling to see him progress. And then we have... And he's going to... I would want to interrupt briefly. He's going to specifically talk about how he got to that point. Like what, what, has, what it has meant for him to move from... The beginning of the stages of things where things weren't necessarily always going according to plan and it wasn't really like happening perfectly and ideally to how do I now make this happen at such a level as he has. That's going to be really interesting. 
Similarly, Laura has hit a number of PRs and ran her very first marathon this year. Debut. Woohoo! And you might have called it a successful it was debut a, it at was that. It was a great debut. And one of the keys that you should look for as you listen to Laura sharing some thoughts is how she has specifically had to take this approach and fit it into a kind of a kind of life approach in terms of the training and such um, that it didn't feel like it naturally fit <laughs> like they, like these things were kind of not totally aligned initially how can i and the way i do things and the way i think about things do this training successfully and this is fascinating laura has some really key insights mm -hmm. to share so let's get started with kyle um we want to first just an answer the question or kyle is going to answer the question um how did the approach help him be successful and start kind of getting into his experiences here how do you feel like the principles as we've discussed things like training by effort and trying to become more intuitive as a runner how do you feel like that has contributed to your progress or what's involved in that well, overall, it, I mean, I point to the entire plan as, as the result, is, is driving the results. And so the if I were to take a step back and say, what what is training by effort done? It's two things. It's sort of allowed me to focus on what, what I'm supposed to do. And it, and it also removes a lot of doubt or any of the... Um, uh, I guess, questions that you'd have going into a training. And it also sort of helps you focus on this is what you're supposed to do. And so when you go into a, a training plan or when I go to it, I just know what I'm supposed to do every day. Nothing more, nothing less. Focus on that. And then you either get it done as you, you know, you're happy with it or you're like, oh, that could have gone differently and then adjust next time. And so it's, and also, it's never going to be perfect each time, but what did you learn from it to sort of take on to the next one? I think when people first start out training by effort, um, they have in their mind, and I did this too, is what effort should translate to. And the key thing I found was it shouldn't translate to anything. It should translate to you did the workout and you felt this way or you felt that way and that way usually was bad this way usually was good and so was that how it should be and so i think when you start trying to um validate the workout um you're sort of hurting yourself and i think that's what you have to sort of get over that initial hump is trying to validate the effort that you put in by the metrics that we've all been sort of taught or thought leading into any sort of running. I mean, when you first start out running, and even now people say, what's your time? What's this? What pace do you run? And yeah, that's good, but it can get in the way of all the other stuff. The other thing is it takes a lot of the pressure off in terms of um, what am I supposed to do today? What does this next day look like? What does this week look like? How hard is this workout going to be? What am I going to feel like? And if you know the effort, yeah, there's going to be hard days because you got to do hard workouts, but at least you go in knowing this is the effort I'm going to give. This is what I have for that day. And so overall, that's sort of the thing, the, the key components of it. And I, I think the key, as I've found, is 
you really start getting a grasp of it when you go through all of the efforts because then you can kind of see at one end of the spectrum this was really good this was i dialed this in or hey i might have went too hard here because i wasn't able to sustain it for the time period or you know whatever and so i think um once you sort of are able to sort of keep building on that progress that's when it sort of really starts to kick in um and then just be honest with yourself i think is one of the keys is was my run easy today was did i really do it steady did i or did i do harder than it should be did i do you know and and nothing else should sort of be that judge besides how you felt and how you felt the effort was and once i get over that that's when it really clicked um for me um and and that's i think one of the the harder things is because it's not the natural place that you come at from running just based on history of how running is judged. So I think there's that initial hurdle to get over all the stuff that you've sort of built up prior to that. Kyle, thank you for sharing those thoughts and in confirming that this arbitrary idea concept of training um, is in fact something that we can do that that sense of knowing what you're supposed to do is not only possible, but as he, as he expressed, like you can, you can actually know what it feels like to do it right. And so then this like effort-based approach that everyone sounds like, Oh, that just sounds like who knows exactly what, you know, on a given day, it's, you don't have a watch on it. So how can you know, you don't have a pace. So what are you doing that there's actually something more concrete than that? That's possible. I appreciate that, Kyle. Thank you. Next. Let's hear from Laura how did the approach appeal or is it something you had to adjust to as you started? Yeah, I think it was both. Um, so I knew when I reached out to you guys initially, this was going to be um, a heavier training load than anything I'd ever done before. Um, so a couple of things that were baked into that for me, one was um, I had to be on board with the distinction between motivation and dedication. So Traditionally, I had kind of come in and out of training for different 5Ks or half marathons um, here and there, but I wasn't ever super dedicated to the to a training program. Um, I just kind of ran based on my motivation level over time, so it ebbed and flowed. Um, but I knew that working with you guys, it was going to be a much higher training load, and I needed to make that switch to where I was dedicated to the training program. Um, regardless of whether I felt motivated or not on any given day, um, I needed to be a little bit more committed to the process. And not that that doesn't mean there are days where, you know, you adjust the schedule on the fly and that sort of thing. Um, but it was just a, a mindset shift to it wasn't based on how I felt. It was based on um, what there was to do and what my body felt capable of on any given day. Um, so that was the, the main thing. I would say also, um, I had never trained based on effort before. So that was a huge, um, a huge shift. And I think part of it, um, you know, there is a lot of trial and error that goes along with it. I've had a lot of conversations with you and Zach about, you know, what exactly different effort categories should feel like. Um, I've spent a lot of time on that part of our of your website, reading through the descriptions of different levels of effort 
to try to make sure that I'm in the right zone for each of the different categories. But um, it is trial and uh, trial and error. And I've um, gotten more comfortable with that process that there's no one specific, like it's a really broad range um, within each category. And there are certain guardrails. Uh, one of the key things I remember when I first talked to you and Zach was um, you guys explained that on the easy days, especially the jogging days, um, you can't mess it up by going too easy. You can only mess it up by going too hard. And that was that was huge for me to know that there was a guardrail there, like on the hard side, like it cannot, I cannot mess this up by going too easy. Like um, that was, that was really an epiphany for me that all my goal was to, um, you know, build the time on feet and serve the purpose of that particular day. Um, and that was a, a new way of thinking about it for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the trial and error part of, of figuring out the effort for each different um, type of workout, um, you know, it's an ongoing process. And I feel like it's different from day to day even because, um, for example, you know, you and I have talked about how the effort for, you know, a steady run, for example, it should be not so hard that I'm not feeling recovered for the next workout day that I have, whether that's, you know, however many days down the road. So depending on the frequency of the hard days, you know, the amount of effort I should be putting into a particular workout day might fluctuate, you know, on any given day. So it's less about trying to perfectly nail something. And it's more about fulfilling the purpose of each day um, and making sure that you're in the right range and kind of getting comfortable with the ambiguity of that and recognizing that it's fulfilling the purpose that's intended even if you don't have a time on your watch to reaffirm that. It's getting comfortable with that sense of success. So Laura's talking about the trial and error, and I have no doubt that, especially her, her kind of final point there, um, getting comfortable with the ambiguity is not something, as many runners hear that, that's like, that sounds like something I really want to do. I really want to train in a way that's kind of ambig ambiguous and go through a bunch of trial and error and hope it works out and such. So thankfully, that's not actually where the comment ended. We wanted to pause here for a moment, break it, break it up. We're going to come back to Laura here, but um, there's an obvious implica implication to, um, to, to the whole thing, but in Laura's comments there, this thing is not straightforward. It is not simple. Um, but that may in fact be an asset. And so now having that thought in mind, couple that with this sense as a runner that we crave progress, we desire success and to see it and tangibly measure it. And that's, a, that's part of, not every runner is this way. Um, and not every runner is this way all the time either. Case in point, there may in fact be someone sitting at this table talking to you right now who has seen a substantial shift in the way he has approached these concepts. Um, but the point is, the point is, we desire that. We want to know that we're not just doing the thing, but we're headed somewhere with it. Hmm. And Laura has something to tell us about that. How was it for you to adjust to this 
And was that a challenge? And what were some things that you discovered as you went through this process? Yeah, it was very much a challenge because there, like you finish a study run and, you know, I still have the data on my watch. It's not supposed to be driving my my effort level on any given day. But, you know, of course I look at it after a study run and I'm like curious, you know, what what were my paces? Does that make sense? Can I rationalize that for being in the study zone? You know, how was I feeling? What did my heart rate look like? All of those things. Um, but it is challenging that you don't have a clearly defined success or failure um, for a given workout. But I think over time, it's gotten to the, like, it's so much more of a success-oriented approach, I feel like, training by effort. Because when you're training by pace, like, it seems like 99 times out of 100, you're not going to nail it exactly. You know, maybe some people do. But um, it's a really narrowly defined success rate. So you're prescribed, you know, a workout to hit certain paces. And then for any number of variables, many of which would be out of your control on any given day, the the weather, your sleep, you know, your kids waking you up all night, anything, it could be any number of things. things. I feel like every workout you're justifying why you didn't hit the paces. And those are, there are plenty of legitimate reasons. Whereas training by effort, it's a much broader target of success because your job is to put in the effort, whatever that looks like, and be within some range of the prescribed effort level. And it doesn't matter if that's faster or slower from day to day. It's a much broader um, target to hit. So you're you're starting from the standpoint of... Um, I don't know, it's easier to feel like you're succeeding in nailing that and nailing each day um, because you can put in that effort, even if it's slower than you'd like it to be. Um, the effort is what matters. So I feel like I come away from my workout days um, feeling a lot more successful, even though it was an adjustment, not not having it clearly as clearly defined um, like my watch wasn't telling me, yay, you ran, you know, X, Y, Z pace. And that's exactly what you're supposed to do. It's not as clearly defined, but you get comfortable with it and you start to feel more satisfied with the, with the results. I feel like. If you're going to take something away from this conversation, this could be a nugget to take away. Wow. It was a great way to describe the approach that we have and what we can gain from it in the day-to-day, the mm. intangible way, that satisfaction that we all desire and long for. Feeling successful more often because we had, we did the purpose of the work and we gained the adaptations. I love that. Mm. We are, we are more successful. It's a success-based approach. Yeah, and, and you have to – don't miss the importance of Laura being the one who says this and in, in part. And you, so obviously you don't know the full context of who Laura is and all of her experiences. But Laura is one who would initially ask us, like, tell me what this needs to look like because I want to do this thing well. I want to do it in a way that is going to be successful, and I need to see what that means. Um and then for us to come back and answer questions like that and say things like, 
we're not going to tell you exactly what it needs to be. Um, but there is a way, and that's the key. I, that's, that's huge. Um, success is clear, but it's not in the same exact sense as we have so often interpreted it as runners. And that in some sense, as Laura was expressing, actually makes it not only more attainable, like we know how to be successful in a much more reliable way with this kind of an approach. It also makes it more satisfying. Mm, absolutely. Think of it. If you were up all night working on a project or you had a kid that was throwing up, <laughs> you needed to take care of them and you're tired, okay? And you go and you have a hard effort the next day and that effort yields a less than desirable data result, okay? You might say, I had a bad workout. But with this approach, you put in the correct amount of effort for the duration that it called for. And you had success that day no matter what the watch says because you are getting adaptations that are gonna move you forward towards your goal. So it was a successful day. Hmm. In fact, it's very victorious to be able to come away after sleepless nights or whatever it is that's in your life that's disturbing how you feel physiologically and mentally. Yeah. So we, we talk about this all the time. We want two things for you as a runner. If there's anything we can influence, we want to be able to influence both of these things. One is we want you to be able to be a better runner on account of the things that we share on this podcast. It's part of why we do it. Um, we also are fairly convinced that every single thing we say is going to help you be a better runner. Zach. <laughs> no, it's true. Otherwise, we wouldn't say it, right? Like at some level. And obviously, Zach sometimes jokes about, well, it's not really a joke. We do happen to have all the answers. But if we didn't, at the very least, we believe that when we get to the point of here's an idea we want to share, it's because we think that idea can help you be a better runner. Otherwise, we would, why would we share it, right? Um, or sometimes it's just funny. But that's one side. That's not the whole picture. We also want you to be a more satisfied runner. We want you to thrive in your life broadly insofar as running is a positive contribution to that. And that also means, you've heard us say it so many times, that sometimes the right answer is not running at a given moment in time, which is a piece of this puzzle. It's only one piece of it. But as Laura expressed, this idea that I, am, I can be more satisfied as a runner when I have a better way of measuring success. And this is one of, this is one of those things that... Um, I can't tell you how many times this comes up in all the different parts and parcels and walks of life and my careers and various capacities, whether when I was a classroom teacher or the other things that we do. But the point is when you can define success best in the best ways, um, it is much more fulfilling, much more satisfying. So Laura has helped point us in that direction so keenly. Thank you, Laura. Much appreciated. Mm -hmm. But we're actually missing one piece still right now. And that is most of what Laura was sharing was still at kind of at the idea level. And when it comes down to it, runners will often say to us, yeah, I'm there with you to a point. And that point is almost always 
not in the races. <laughs> and and so we get this like sense of, I get you, I'm following you, but I got to do it this way because I got to hit my Boston qualifier or because I, at the end of the day, I still, I got to try to run that personal best. And so I got to do, do it this way. Well, you don't, you don't have to do it that way. And how do I know this? Because Kyle, <laughs> because Kyle has something to say to you and to all of us um, to, to just really help see what does this look like in a full picture. So let's wrap it up with Kyle. You know, you can do some things within there that sort of in the training or in the, once you learn sort of are in this effort-based training that get you to a point of where you sort of like, well, I did all the training and I did all the effort, but now it's time to dial in a, a pace in a, in a time that I want to hit. And that's where my, my mind, it sort of falls apart is you have to, you sort of have to play where, when I, when it worked for me is when I started playing the effort all the way through the, the end is you can't like stop and then go back and say, well, today's the day I'm going to hit these paces or this time, because you're going to end up in one of two places. You're going to sabotage yourself because you're going to run, you're going to go slower than you could have because you wanted to hit a number that you're actually better than, or you're going to, it's situations are going to be different that you're going to then freak out that you're behind and, who knows what will happen there. And that's happened to me. And I think then it leads you to this, nothing's ever going to go right. And, you know, and so I, that's where I think in the mess sort of leads you to understanding how to change that. And in my mind, it's from those mistakes, you can kind of um, figure out what you need to do differently. Um, but it's it tends to be, it comes from a place of wanting to sort of veer off because you're uncomfortable or something like that. And so um, that's, in my opinion, that's sort of like, that's what's helped me is just stay the course. Everything will, everything will work out if, you know, in the long term, if you continue just to sort of follow this course and, and stay with it. And you kind of said it, but I want you to talk a little more about this and reflect a little more about this. Um, you, you know, you said, well, you know, the pace isn't necessarily the thing that tells you if you're doing the right thing. Um, so what does then? Like what? Like if you're in that race, Kyle, because you've you've mm-hmm. done both, right? You've had some mm-hmm. that you uh, would have preferred to have done a different way or gone a different way, and you've had others that have come together fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you? executing that race without the pace and yet knowing that you're achieving what you can be and i don't mean to um and this isn't again we didn't talk about this but the answer is because i've done all the training and i know what the effort feels like and so that that took me a little bit to learn but um i know what that effort should feel like for how long I can maintain and whether I can push more and whether I can't push more. And, and I, I know it's like, it sounds like it's this um, magical, you know, thing that appears at the end. And it's like, well, of course it's worked out for him, but what I'm, I guess the, the main thing there is, is the more you do it, the more you'll sort of see that it, it plays out that way um, because in the end, I think you're going to be surprised by doing all this training by effort and 
and getting an, a really intuitive sense of what that effort feels like and what you can do, it's going to produce what you want and probably more. And so that's where I would say is like, you know, because you've seen it in training and the, on the flip side, if you haven't seen it and felt it in training, don't all of a sudden expect, um, you know, something magical to come because you set another pace in that you set some sort of goal that isn't, is not going to happen. And so that's what you're capable of doing at that time based on the training and everything you've done. And so I think it it's a lot, it's, it's sort of like, Oh, train and race by sort of block or better word faith in your training, but th in your effort and intuition. But I really believe, and I've heard other, even professionals, you know, and even, you know, in your stories, you don't, you don't, I haven't looked at pace until, you know, at a certain point, or I didn't turn it out. I didn't, I don't know what I'm doing until, you know, X miles left. Um, I, in, in me, I haven't run with a, a pace on my watch in three years or however, since we started running, like the first thing I did when I started training with you guys is switch my, my training, you know, on my watch face to no, no pace, no pace, no heart rate, no anything like that. And to me, if you look at some of the progress and stuff that I you know, have, that's where all of a sudden it, it tracks of in a different trajectory. So that's, I know it's a long answer, but, and it's probably, it sounds like I'm, 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 you know, I'm selling, selling a certain, a certain way of doing it, but I, I believe that it, it does equal to that performance that you're going to want to get. So if that, if that hasn't convinced you yet, uh, thank you, Kyle, again. And, and the point to never forget that this thing has implications in all aspects of what we do as a runner. And when we find the way to apply it well, you could say with fidelity to the different areas, um, we can see a kind of success that I think is better than necessarily a more narrowly defined sense. And the best way to say that is we always go back to the final point. Um, it is absurd to think that a race's success should be defined by such a narrow and fickle end. Something like I ran the time or not, um, because there are so many other things involved in that. And if you get done with a race, no matter what the end result, and you know that you did everything you could possibly have done that day to achieve the best possible result, and you don't run that, quote, time you wish you had run, and then you say to yourself, well, that was a failure, that is absurd. It's a kind of failure, you could say, for sure, because you didn't achieve a thing that you were hoping to achieve. But to not be able to walk away from that satisfied is that's tragic to us. So how do we have both? I think Kyle gave us the right answer to executing well. Laura gave us the right answer to achieving both, to finding satisfaction and being successful in the midst of the process and through that end result, whatever form it takes. And what else can we do as runners? <laughs> That's kind of the thing. 
I loved this conversation with Kyle and Laura. So thank you both for coming on. Now we're going to get on to the world of running. This week in the world of running, we're starting with a kind of a rare event, the 25K. Now, this was the fastest standalone 25K ever for both the men and the women. This was the Tata Steel uh, Kolkata 25K. Say that five times fast. <laughs> Tata Steel Kolkata. World Athletics Elite Le Label Road Race. So it did draw a lot of attention. There were some really great athletes, hence the fast times. That's the so when you when you hear something like World Athletics something label gold label elite label you know there's a lot of different things, um, they're doing that in order to bring more attention and competitiveness to an event. They're trying to basically they've got a whole bunch of initiatives to expand running in various capacities and one of them is to just simply add something to an event. To elevate it and, and this is a way to do it more money now more prize money a little bit more value for the runner because it now contributes to their world ranking points in different ways things like that mm -hmm. on the men's side the men's winner was daniel abenio and he ran a time of 111 13 winning by over a minute so that's a substantial victory he's won two silver medals from the world championships first in budapest in the 10,000, and then the world road running championships in the half marathon and this was not the fastest ever run for the 25K, but the fastest for a standalone event, as I alluded to when we started this conversation. It was the second fastest, only behind Elliot Kipchoge's 111.08. He said, Five seconds. Yeah. He right. set that en route to his world marathon record of 201.09 in Berlin last year. Previous world marathon record, right? Because right. Calvin kept to him broke that by only a small amount mm -hmm. i don't think that's ratified yet though right well we oh. don't know for sure yeah that'd be interesting to know we don't know for sure if kelvin kiptum had an official timing mat for his 25k because he did run a really fast 25k and his <laughs> world record as well but it does need to have an official time to be called the 25k world best now this is the 25k world best in the standalone event so there's lots of tiers of things but just know this is really fast. <laughs> yeah. That's what you got to know. And on the woman's side, it was also the story that we had a really fast time. Sutum Asefa Kebede ran 118.47, winning by 39 seconds over legendary Yellumsworth Yawana. Yeah. Previous half marathon world record holder. Yep. Yawala. Yep. She ran uh, fast as well, but... Of course, we had a winner, Kabede, who improved the previous event record by a substantial amount. The previous event record was 121.04, and she ran 118.47. And what we could find from this World Athletics article was that the previous standalone time was 119.53, so improving the time by a minute, and that was back in 2010 by Mary Keatony. Yeah, so that... That's a long time. And it just, I mean, it goes to show an event like this, 25K, doesn't generally get a lot of attention. So World Athletics to come in and give this event a higher label to bring more attention and competitiveness to it, well, it's paying off. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And 
I was doing a little digging because the article from World Athletics did not list this, but I wanted to know what the fastest time recorded for 25K is the actual world best, and that was Ruth Chepnagetich in the Chicago Marathon in 2022. She ran a time of 118.03. And we were debating earlier off air that Tigis Tasefa, when she set the 211 and change world record marathon in Berlin in 2023 here, just this year, um, there's a good chance she ran a faster 25K split in that one. But we don't actually know that for sure, and it may not have had a official yeah, split right. timing, official that, timing uh, that. So hard to know. And Safan Hassan has also run faster. I, I I know that this isn't the second fastest ever 25K as it was for the men's, but again, fastest standalone. Yeah, right on. Well, well, speaking of fast, right? We usually are talking about things that are fast, but this time on the track and this time in Japan, although that's not something that we are are sharing as a novelty because the Japanese have been very fast, very, very fast for several years. But this year we talked about their youth and how they were just coming on really quick um, and comparing that to our U.S. athletes who are the fastest that they've ever been. The Japanese were like another level and had significantly more athletes that were running these impressive times. That's the big point. And anytime we bring this up, the reason why um, we're bringing it up as like a thing to know and to pay attention to is because as well, not just the level of competitiveness, the competitive edge, but the depth of competitiveness. There are not many places in the world where you can find this many fast runners concentrated in such a way. And so that that by itself raises questions like what is going on that's fueling that. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked about that a fair bit. And we've brought to you some of the reasons as other people seem to understand them. And this is just more proof of. You mentioned this. I didn't write it down. But I remember because the article's fresh in my mind. You'd said, what other countries have this kind of depth? The only one that has the kind of depth the Japanese do for the 10,000, which we're about to talk about, is Kenya. Yes. It is the only other one that has the same amount of depth, more depth than the Japanese. So we're going to tell you a little bit about that right now because the Japanese had a really big event for the 10,000 meter run on the track. And on the women's side, we had Rikata. Hironaka of Japan running 30.55.29 to win the race. And the significant part of the women's race story is that four women went under 31 minutes. Previous to this race, there had only been five in history to go under 31, and now there are eight. So one that's of them had already done it before. Right. You do the math. Hironaka, like, wait, 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 she was the only one that had done it before who who won the race. She's the former 5,000-meter national record holder. And it was a really close race. It came down to the last 200 meters, which I think yields some of the best results as a, as a collective when you are able to have like a really close race. It eggs on the competition, of course. It did have pacing lights. That was something that was mentioned, but yeah, it's in the Olympic Stadium, right? It was in the Olympic Stadium, Tokyo mm -hmm. Stadium. It's got all the gear, all <laughs> the finest and best that track racing has to offer. Hironaka's time in this race was the fastest by a Japanese woman this year, and there were twelve personal bests in the race. Amazing, amazing, absolutely amazing. Well, on the men's side, similar story, fast running, but uh, further still. Not only lots of personal bests and fast times, but in fact, 
not just one or two, but three Japanese men in one race all bested the previous national record. So here you have now a scenario where they're going so fast that anyone who wins this race is guaranteed this record. And uh, three of them in close succession uh, all did it, all bested it. And third place was uh, 27-13. That was Akira Aziwawa. Aziwa, sorry. And then in second place, 27-12, Tomoki Ota. And in first place with a new record, 27-09, was Kazuya Shiojiri. So... <laughs> that's fast. so fast and close yeah. and, and close i mean that's the you know fourth place was uh, about nine seconds back but still uh one of the top five ten thousand meter performances all time so like that's just that's just mad depth and you know an incredible opportunity for them to come out and run in an event at mm -hmm. this caliber and uh it just speaks well for you know continuing the future of the sport Absolutely. And continuing the conversation on depth, 37 Japanese men this year in 2023 have broken 28 minutes in the 10,000 meter run. So as Andy said, essentially, there's kind of like a tier list of um, concentration of athletes. And so for the distance events, Kenya seems to own it in terms of depth. I think they said 58 Kenyan about men right. have run yep. under 28 minutes yep ethiopia is super fast but not quite as deep so this is one of the things that always gets interesting you start to look at the performance list it depends on the event um but it's kenya ethiopia and japan a head and shoulders above any other national centralization of athletes running fast it's kenya ethiopia and japan and that's incredible that's really something so you're watching the world's best doing the thing that they do best and that's a lot of fun now Last note for our World of Running It's a little different. It's a little shift. Yeah. So we, we always want to bring you some kind of like general news as well. What are the things that are happening in the sport and uh, not just the performances and people running fast? So the NIL situation in the NCAA, that's the name, image, likeness contracts that these athletes are getting, um, has been a fascinating study on both evolving policy and shifting to try to meet uh, shifting demands, but also um, the motivations behind these things for the brands. So let me give you the quick background. This comes from Outside Magazine. They did their homework. They, they really presented here in this article um, an exceptional uh, comprehensive view of this idea as it currently stands. But as you know, you have scenarios where it's like, you know, these high performing athletes get offered a contract from a major company and uh, it's a name image likeness contract, not a pro contract. And that's very different. And the main difference in spirit is, or rather in application, is that a pro contract is uh, performance sp sponsorship, essentially, where a name image likeness contract is everything except performance sponsorship. So in fact, they're not even allowed to do things like performance bonuses in an NIL. So if you hmm. make a world record, your NIL people will not give you a penny more or less than they did if you don't. Well, maybe if they said, post this thing and include us now that you've won, 
Yeah, but they can't do it. The they can't tie it to the performance. Is what I'm saying. Uh. So there's a whole bunch of weird restrictions. That's a good example of like there's scenarios here where they have to really have some strange restrictions. And so as it were, then you get the the dividing line in the NCAA where it's the athlete cannot promote their sponsor um, while on team time, practice or competition, and remember their school is likely to have a brand sponsor as well so that that brand sponsor gets promoted at team time and their personal sponsor gets promoted any other time uh, which in some cases is no problem take for instance caitlin tui caitlin tui when she was first offered her nil contract from adidas happened to also be running for a school nc state that was sponsored by adidas and remember now she's now and now Signed she has a pro, a pro contract <laughs> from Adidas. Adidas. So you could suggest here that part of the motivation clearly there was like a kind of um, th this word has so much negative connotation, but it's a positive scenario here. They were grooming her for a professional relationship and rightly so. You know, one of the best of all time. We definitely want to have an active relationship before she's a professional athlete so that we are a natural choice for her when she makes that choice and she did and so great caitlin tui's scenario makes sense parker valby similar scenario she runs for florida who is sponsored by nike and her personal nil contract is nike so no surprise there that's a logical choice for nike to want to do that but there are other situations that make a little bit less sense for instance lex and leo young the young Tell us about it Tell us about it. Um, so they run for Stanford. They are freshmen at Stanford. In fact, they only just finished their first semester at Stanford and Freshies. already have a name image likeness contract. There's a lot of interesting points around that. Um, as you might guess, the name image likeness contracts, because of what we just described, have less to do with someone's performance accolades and a lot more to do with their social media attention, um, which goes to motivation number one that Outside Magazine shared. Social media matters more than anything else because that's where these athletes are receiving the most amount of attention. You think about, look at NCAA's viewership, like live in person and streaming viewership, and then look at Lex and Leo Young's YouTube subscriptions. Mm. Not even close. Like, isn't that crazy? Not even close. Lex and Leo Young get way more attention on YouTube than they'll ever get running in races in the NCAA. Therefore, on athletics... When they decided to give an NIL deal to Lex and Leo Young, we're gambling that that was a more profitable space for their brand than the other. But there's more to it. And that's what's so interesting here. That, in fact, is not necessarily as much a gamble as it sounds. A couple of reasons. First, there is precedence and potential for a change in this policy at the NCAA level. And, and here's where we, where we understand this to come from. USA track and field, for instance, actually, I think it's the case for all, for all national level. Anyway, I don't know exactly how far this extends, but USA track and field has for years been sponsored by Nike, um, as their brand sponsor, which means if it's you like run years or something, yeah, like that. if you run for team USA at the world championships or the Olympics or something, then you have to wear Nike uniform which is the USA uniform. You don't get a choice. You don't say, oh, I want the Adidas version of the USA uniform because I'm sponsored by Adidas. No, it's all Nike. Well, that, as you might guess, has been a problem, a point of contention for pro athletes who are saying, 
why should I have to wear some other brand when I have a contract with this other one here? I should get to wear my brand. Well, we understand why we should probably wear matching uniforms because it's, you know, it's a team. It's a team, kind of. <laughs> At least they're claiming it's a team, even though really it's just an individual sport. But the point is, yes, we get that. But what about the shoes? Well, it came to a head in part because of Nick Simmons, which we could go into Way a whole go, backstory. Nick Simmons. He's, he's done so many interesting things, including auctioning off his shoulder for a tattoo for a brand. Whoever wants to pay me the most, I'll tattoo your company logo on my shoulder for the championships. I just thought that was the funniest. What a great he's move. He's clever. He's creative. He is a marketing maestro. But as it were, the policy changed in, the re in recent years where now pro athletes who have a shoe contract with some brand can wear that brand's shoes even at the world championships. So they still have to wear the Nike uniform, but they can wear whatever shoes their brand gives them. Now, interestingly enough, if you're not professionally obligated to wear a brand shoes, then you still have to wear the Nike. <laughs> so it's okay. I, I think everybody should be able to wear the footwear that works best for them. That's what I think. Yeah. Well, as it goes, <laughs> you can see now the precedence exists for NCAA's policy to potentially shift where it says, okay, your brand sponsor for your school is not required if you have a personal sponsor um, for the shoes, for the footwear. Of course, they're going to still have to wear matching uniforms because, you know, it's a team, kind of. But we get it. We could see a scenario where Lex and Leo Young, having been scooped up by on early in their career, may in fact see a day while they're still running at Stanford when they're wearing on shoes even though it's a Nike school. So on is playing the long game there. And I think it's a very clever long game at that. But in their endeavor as a brand, they're really gambling on the fact that what brings the brand the most attention is not what's that athlete wearing in the NCAA championships, but rather what's that athlete talking about on their social media accounts or YouTube channels. More or importantly for YouTube Lex and Leo. social mm -hmm. media, but yes, why Anyone on the planet cares what Lex and Leo talk about on their YouTube account? I mean, I, I don't know. think it would be interesting. I don't know. Who knows? People listen to us. <laughs> yes, but there's a different reason. We are giving you information about how to better yourself in the sport. We are not just walking around talking about what we ate. You don't know what for... they... You haven't watched You're right. I don't because I don't watch it because I don't pay attention to social media. Anyway... That's only even part of the picture. There's so much more going on here. And so as we say this, the whole thing is on the cusp of change at every moment in time. This whole NIL college sponsorship thing. Take into account the fact that there's a huge multi-billion dollar lawsuit, class action lawsuit from ex-NCAA athletes who are no longer collegiate, who are now suing the organization because, well, hey, I didn't get all that money and they, and they do now and I, I want it. So you should give it to me, which is a, basically a summary of the lawsuit. Once again, I don't fully understand how that's possible. How, there, how is there even legal precedent? The ability to sue for a thing that you wish you should have gotten when you didn't, but someone else is now, is insane. I have at my two cents is that they likely signed a contract when they went to school, got their school paid for. 
got to run on a team. They knew what to expect going in. I doubt any of the universities were like, hey, you're going to get money through sponsorships while you're here with us. I don't think the colleges or universities promised any such thing. So now to ask for in retrospect is like, that person got something I wish I had. That's what kind of what it seems like to me. But of course, I haven't read all the fine print of this lawsuit. So I, we'll see. I'm just shocked and appalled that it's even possible to have this lawsuit. But <laughs> we don't know how it's going to end. Maybe maybe at one point or another, the judge who's or the I don't know how these things are settled. How are class action lawsuits settled? They're so big. Anyway. <laughs> Who knows? We're going to follow that because we're really interested and we're going to keep you posted because these things are fascinating. They are influencing the sport in ways we do not yet know exactly how it's going to affect, but it certainly is going to affect. And my hope is with all the other weirdness and certainly plenty of negative potential things that it just helps to further the sport, our, mm -hmm. our sport of running, which is such an exciting thing for us. And we want to see it gain popularity and attention where it can so we'll see and we'll let you know mm -hmm. and you let us know if you have questions because we want to answer them on air we also have loved having these guests on the show to further dive into effort-based training what that looks like and i loved how laura put today about the satisfaction having this success oriented training we want you to feel that we want you to thrive and that's why we're here. That's why we come show up every single week. Thank you all for joining us and we'll talk to you next week.